Welcome to the B2B Category Creators Podcast, hosted by Gil Alouche, founder and CEO of Metadata.io. This podcast is all about sharing the real and sometimes uncomfortable secrets of category creation in the B2B software space. On this week's episode, we have David Spitz, CMO at Ignite, a leader in cloud content security and governance, and Armando Biondi, CEO and co-founder of Breadcrumbs.io, a revenue acceleration platform focused on lead scoring and routing. Good. Well, welcome everyone. Happy Friday. My name is Gil Alush, um, and this is the Category Creation Podcast, episode number, I think, 23, but I'm not sure. I have to get it with me, David and Armando. Uh, David, maybe you can start us off a uh, quick introduction of, of yourself. Sure. I'm a chief marketing officer at Ignite. Uh, Ignite is a company that, that helps businesses secure, manage, govern their most valuable and exposed form of data, which is their content. Very cool. Great to have you here. Thank you for coming. Armando, you're next. A quick introduction of yourself and your company. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm you know, an operator and an angel investor. I invest in about 200 companies at this point, and I am running my third company uh, after selling both my previous two companies. The current one is called Breadcrumbs. Uh, it's a no-code scoring engine as a service. And so uh, happy to talk more about that if interesting. Awesome. Well, great to have you both. Uh, I, I know both of you, uh, and I'm really excited to have you. Uh, as I, I mentioned to both Armando and David, usually our guests have alcohol and I get them to drink when they do sales pitches, which you didn't, which is great. You just like said like two sentences about the company and, and moved on, which I thank you for. Uh, but there's no alcohol. I'm only going to be drinking a little bit. Uh, so you are going to be drinking when we don't behave. So that's going to yeah, be... Yeah, exactly. Fun. That's, that's going to be... That's, <laughs> I don't know how that's going to work, but that's not going to happen. That's not going to be great for you. <laughs> uh, it's going to be fine. It's Friday. I'm in the East Coast like you, so it's cool. Uh, Armando, you know, I, I, I know you and remember you from Adespresso for 500 startups. You're like one of the stories I remember uh, reading about you and meeting you at the 500 events. Uh, that was a while yeah. ago, right? That was a long time yeah, ago. You and Masi. Okay. So Adespresso was uh, September 2013 and we started it and then we sold it December 2016. Pretty quick. It was, uh, yeah, it was three years, a uh, little more than that. Uh, and so we probably, it was when, early 2014 that we uh, got to know each other a bit. So yeah, it was uh, a few years ago. Very cool. I remember a lot about Adespresso. So it was partially even, I would say, inspiration uh, for me to start a company. And you invested in 200 companies since? Yeah. Damn it. And you haven't invested in Metadata. How dare you? I actually think I have, but you have. I, I don't need to look at my portfolio because it's like too many. I cannot remember them anymore. Maybe, maybe through uh, an SPV. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I think maybe. that's awesome. But <laughs> I didn't realize it's been so long. That's amazing. Yeah. That's really cool. And David, you and I spoke, I think uh, maybe like three to six months ago. Uh, you told me about your experiences uh, at WPP, if I'm not mistaken. We talked about the mutual connection we have and how they came about. To, to, meet, to meet you when you were at WPP and how they were all uh, nervous. I don't know if you remember that conversation. Uh, no, I must've been drinking back then because I, I don't remember uh, our mutual connection, but I do remember talking about uh, being, in the, being in the ad agency those days. And uh, no, I, I was there for, for eight years. Um, I joined through this uh, management rotation program that Sir Martin Sorrell had set up 
and run for a number of years where you spend uh, a year each in the different agencies and you, you get to learn a lot about different marketing disciplines, travel the world, meet a lot of people. And then I spent the rest of the time doing kind of what Armando is doing, investing in a lot of uh, companies off of WP's balance sheet. So not not 100, but probably about uh, 20 or 30 different companies we invested in over that period. Um, you know, had a couple of good exits and, you know, got to got a bit of the startup uh, itch at that through that through that experience. Very cool. Well, we our, our podcast is called the category creation. So we inevitably talk about category creation as, as one of the subjects, although not everyone agrees that category should be created or not all companies should create a category. So we can start off there. Um, Armando, since you had uh, you operated three companies uh, in also two of them in a very busy space, the Martech space, which I'm yes. intimately familiar Artex with. Space, which is worse. Artex, even worse. Oh God, no one even says that word. It's like a dangerous word to say, especially <laughs> with investors. Uh, no, like who works in Artex knows that Artex is hard, right? And also who invests in Artex knows that Artex is hard. And it's not because like there are a bunch of reasons for that. It's not to like diminish like the value of working in a space or, a, you know, another one, but Attic is art. Um, it's Absolutely. Fast, it is. fast moving. You have, you know, the Google, the Facebook, the Amazon of the world investing a shit of money in engineering resources into making that space move forward even faster. And so you have to keep up with that. And so as a consequence, your IP devalues itself faster than any other space or industry. And so, you know, it has its own rules. You have to know the game to play the game. Yet you still chose to, uh, to start a few companies in, in that space. You... Yes, I like a challenge. You know, I, I get myself into trouble to see whether I can get myself out of it, you know. You hedge your bets with the, with the investments. Tell, uh, when, you, when you think about Attic and, and Martech in general and it being, you know, everyone knows the Lumascape, uh, mm-hmm. You know, kind of yeah. the, the, the infographic. When you think about Martech and the crowded space, and then you think about the words category creation, what comes to mind? Uh, well, a couple of things from my side. So, you know, there is this tension. There's been this narrative that has been going on for a while about the fact that there is too many companies and that the space is consolidating or should consolidate. The reality is that if you look at the Lumascape, uh, it started, I think, about 10 years ago. And back then it had maybe 200, 300, 400 companies, and now it's like 8,000, right? And so the reality is that there is, I would argue that there is an almost infinite appetite for best of breed solutions that solve specific problems for specific segments of customers. And so if you put the intersection of, you know, specific problem for a specific segment of customer and then best of breed solutions, really like a three-dimensional, you know, Venn diagram, and you could pretty much feed like a lot of companies and a lot of type of customers and a lot of, you know, different problems and solutions in there. Um, and so you see the reality is that these ex- there is consolidation happening, yes, but there is also expansion that continues to happen. And also problems tend to become more and more complex if you think about it and also change over time. And so different problems, different solutions that evolve over time. 
I love that opinion, especially because I agree with it. Uh, you know, there are there are uh, two schools of thought. I think in Martech that one one that says that the, there's going to be like a market 2.0, a three more 3.0, another black box company that is just going to include all of the technologies in there. There's a consolidation school of thought, and then there's another school of thought that says that there are new companies. If you look at the last white combinator a month ago, there are like 43 new Martech companies just in one batch. So I 100% agree that that, that is happening. And Brackett was one of them, by the way. Now that you mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> drink uh david what do you think about from you know thinking i you know you worked you worked in martech but you also worked in you know especially wpp for so long being almost on the other side of that equation you know being in a big conglomerate uh, or, or a big company like wpp that owns many companies by itself how do you see that that space and then the consolidation or non-consolidation yeah, it's a, it's a good question about ad tech related to category creation. On the one hand, ad tech has a very bad reputation of coming up with, uh, you know, acronym soup. You know, every 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 two months there's a new acronym. Uh, uh, companies trying to differentiate themselves from the previous generation. You know, at a at a very rapid pace. On the other hand, you know, it's that's that's a pretty incredible attribute of ad tech companies. And entrepreneurs is that they're constantly reinventing themselves with a laser focus on you know serving a particular customer segment, which is you know these these uh, advertising uh, buyers agencies, um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like um, when I think about category creation, you probably have all read the uh, Clayton Christensen book about the innovator's dilemma, and that was based on the uh, Theodore Levitt uh, concept of marketing myopia. And he says that, you know, people don't, the famous quote, people don't want a drill, they want a quarter inch hole. And he says all these companies like, you know, the railroad industry got in a lot of trouble because they define themselves as a railroad company as opposed to being in the transportation business. So he says like, be careful about how you define your category and don't get too religious about the category, just follow the customer and follow the need. And ad tech companies are actually like a great example of people who just keep innovating around, around the customer. Um, you know the the result can be kind of comical around the around the acronyms, but they're they're really good at that thing. So I do have some concerns, I guess, about the the topic of category creation. But when it when it comes to ad tech, I think uh, it's a it's a very dynamic industry, and I, I really enjoyed working in that for a period of my career. I love that. I, I think the 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 outcome in, in ad tech and martech the outcome can be huge if you are successful differentiating. What are your some of your concerns? Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Well, I just I mean I guess I reference this a little bit, but category creation it feels a little bit like uh, you know Elvis. You know he's the you always think about these category kings and Elvis is sort of the the king of rock and roll. But it's a complicated story. Did he really create rock and roll? You know, you know I don't I don't know that much about the story, but, you know, there were a lot of influences um, who were these unsung heroes who came before them. He never even claimed to be the guy who created the category, but a lot of category creation is this very um, kind of machismo, heroic uh, element of saying like, there's these great men usually who go out there and define a category. Yeah. And I, I think that's just kind of, you know, secondary is less important um, than following the customer need that's already out there and serving it incredibly well. So category creation, um, you know, it, it, it is helpful, but it's not as important as, as some other parts of marketing.
So one thought here, I don't know if you, for the sake of the conversation, I've been thinking about this idea of category creation for a while. To me, it's more, it's not like the company creating the category, is the company stumbling on a category that's creating itself and ending up capturing kind of the zygest of the moment or, and or being positioned well enough to become like the top of mind, you know, category defining solution for that specific vertical and or that specific customer, right? And so, right. yeah. That's definitely, you know, the, the goal is a, is a worthy one. You wanna be number one or number two at something. You wanna be top of mind right. whenever think, people think about a need. I mean, arguably you wanna become the name for that need like Google instead of search or Uber instead of taking uh, a taxi. Um, but that's usually something that maybe happens after the fact, you know, once you've really tapped into that, that yeah. market opportunity, that need in an incredibly, an incredible way. Um, it's very hard when you go out and say, I'm going to go create a category uh, and I'm going to get everyone else to follow. That's really, that works sometimes and sometimes it doesn't, but the, the more important area is tapping into this cultural zeitgeist. Yeah. Most of the time it doesn't because creating a category is really expensive. And yeah. like the examples that you've been expensive and long, the Google of the world, the Facebook of the world, the Amazon of the world, the Uber of the world, they are the winners of a brutal and uh, extremely expensive battle that have been raging on for like 10, 15 years. Right. What do you, think you never hear about like... all the guys who went out there, tried to create a category and, you know, didn't work. And there's probably, you know, thousands and thousands of those. And all people talk about are they, are the ones where after the fact it works. So history is written by the victors. That's very true. What do you guys think about, uh, I had the Nick Meta here and I also had um, the, the, the CEO of Sendoso and both of them actually went after it, meaning it was purposeful. Uh, Nick Meta, I think is, 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 is a kind of a widely accepted as a person that uh, together with uh, Anthony Canada, I think together created the customer success and uh, to your point, uh, Armando, even a question. I don't, I don't agree with that. Like you say, created customer success. So there was a trend around customer success being a new function within organizations and being a need, serving SaaS as a business model. And then, you know, Nick Meta was very good at you know anticipating the trend and or capturing or like uh, seeing that happening mm -hmm. and positioning himself to be the solution of choice for that cohort of operators, which is differentiating from yeah. creating a category, right? It's You're not... differentiating between the customer success people already agree existed maybe, but maybe they didn't have that job title. Maybe they didn't have a piece of software or process or so career the, path. The soundbite to me there is that new, so new spaces uh, evolving into new categories because there is a new breed of operators uh, pop popping up will need uh, a tech stack. And so within that need of a tech stack, there will be one or two solutions back to David's point that will become the solution of choice. And so the category winners, but okay, they did, can... did, did they create the category or like, did they, were they there when a new need emerged in the market? And so they were the right solution for that right operator at the right time. Do you right? think there is a chicken and the egg sometimes situation where there might be a little bit of a need or something kind of popping up, but then an entrepreneur or whoever, a business operator 
captures that and then makes it into something much bigger than it would you know i remember talking to uh to nick and and uh, i remember asking about something completely different we were talking about raising money and how it was tough for him to prove to vcs that this thing is even happening to begin with this whole like customer success not not everyone was really was really convinced and he said hey i, I was i would always go to back to basics even after a bad conversation with the vc that wouldn't give me that that check I, I, that's I because back, i would go to google trends and i would look into was that was that that's because people assume that vcs are smarter than them and that outside, outside of that i completely agree really with that case. Yeah. but he said he would go in and, and look into google trends just to confirm to himself okay yes, that's, that's customer success point. job is is growing and there's a trend that i can, I so can customer write success is growing and if you think about why success is growing because business like from a business model perspective like fundamentally SaaS requires it's an ongoing subscription right and so when it's high value customers you want that relationship to not not only to continue but to grow over time and that is really tied to emergence of SaaS as a business model and so again new new business models new functions within organizations need new solutions and, te- and technology supporting their function and then yes Nick meta and gainsight great job but did they create the category mm. I love the distinction you know it's very interesting I don't think that distinction came up so I think what you're what you talk about is that there was a natural movement that was happening maybe it was moving slowly or what it was happening anyway because of a business need because of a reality SAS, recurring revenue the, the the nrr all that stuff there is a need for example. success mm-hmm. i'll give you the, the adespresso example right so the that with adespresso we didn't mention it but like it was a good story adespresso was facebook advertising optimization for small and medium businesses small and medium enterprises in about three years we mentioned that ended up processing about a billion dollars in facebook advertising budget through the platform so ended up being one of the top five globally by volume uh and one of the top probably the top number one partner for Facebook by number of advertisers. And we did that because we were extremely good and focused on content. So we ended up doing like 750,000 monthly Unix visitors on, on our website. We would publish content that would rank on top of Facebook. If you search for Facebook updates right now on Google, the Facebook, the Adespresso page ranks higher than Facebook, which is not supposed to happen. Did we create that category or did we capture something that was happening outside of us and we were the best position to be the winners because of a series of events? Very interesting. So, so you saw the trend and you captured it and, and you kind of rode that wave. I always think about um, marketing automation as, as another trend that kind of... Yeah. Uh, that kind of caught on and you know it's interesting distinction um i wonder how how big of a role do, those companies that they took advantage of or maybe even defined it because you know if you if you talk to the to anthony and i even remember talking to anthony before i talked to nick like years ago and his point was uh making the customer success career or making them like a first class citizen in the organization uh something that they, that they really worked on so You, you, you may not give them the credit to create a category, but would you give them the credit for defining it and making it a big deal? Winning the category, absolutely yes. For creating the category, would the category have existed if not for them? Like if the category would have not existed mm-hmm. without them, yes. But I, that would be diminishing to me in this customer success example. I don't believe that customer success wouldn't, would have not existed without Gainsight. It would have existed anyway there would have been another maybe 
I don't know, solution instead of gain side that was competing and then gain side ended up winning the space. I'm sure like he had competitors, right? Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, that sounds like an example of uh, picking an audience and, you know, serving them incredibly well. So if you think of a market as uh, a group of people and a job to be done, you know, that that's exactly what we're saying too. It's, it's about tapping into a market that exists and, you know, giving them voice and uh, you know, capturing that wave as opposed to, I don't know, you're familiar with like the value proposition, like the typical Jeffrey Moore value proposition. It's like four user group who need to do X, that makes sense. But then you'd say, you know, my company is Y uh, and unlike competitors, we do, you know, Z. I just think that that middle part of the statement, my company is why, is maybe the, le the least important part of the, of the sentence. Um, you know, it's, it's not unimportant. Like it's in there for a reason. You have to um, have a label that people can share and identify with. No one wants to buy something that no one else is buying. So it, it gives you sort of confidence that this is a real thing. And um, I'm not the only one who's taking this risk, but more important, I guess, in this gainsight example is that, you know, he, he identified an underrepresented community and, you know, just was laser focused on them and people weren't paying enough attention to that part of the organization. So that seems like a good, you know, that's definitely very worthy and important. Another element to me, and I a hundred percent agree with, with what Dave just said, it's timing. Right. So that if you take away, if you accept the fact that new needs create new functions within organizations that that require technology to do their job better, there is a timing window where the function is new. And so it needs that technology stack. And then the technology stack emerges. And within that emerging technology stack, you have one or two winners. If you arrive five years later, that's done. If you arrive five years too early, it's not there yet. Yeah, I'll give you a great great example that I was watching uh, when Steve Jobs introduced the, the iPad. And um, that I remember that time because he announced it. I was working at WP at the time. He announced it in uh, January. My daughter was born in March and it shipped in, in April. And, uh, you know, so I, I ordered it and I was like, you know, all excited to be sharing photos of, you know, my new family on that iPad. But before it shipped, I remember taking, uh, this was our first child. I took our laptop to the hospital because I thought we're going to be sitting around there for a long time. My wife's going to want to watch some movies. And it was very clunky. We kind of had the laptop propped up, you know, in the delivery room, tried to watch movies. It was a, it was a horrible experience. And, you know, two or three weeks later, the, the iPad emerged. And I was rewatching as as and my baby emerged two you know two or three hours later. But I was watching uh, his uh, introductory remarks, and he was saying, you know, do we need a, a new category that's between the phone and the desktop? But then he wasn't really talking about category creation. He wasn't coming up with a label like you would in ad tech of a new DSP or SSP or a phablet or this or that. He was just saying like, if you want to browse the web you know, from your couch, if you want to share photos of your children on the go, if you want to watch a movie on the plane, like you, th those needs existed. And, you know, I felt those needs very strongly because I was crunched up there, you know, trying to watch movies on a laptop. It was a very awkward experience. Uh, and he just picked the right time and the right need to be, to be launching that device. And it wasn't really a big deal about whether 
you know, it was a category, not a category. All I cared about was like, we're going to address this need better than anyone else. Very he did. He did take time away to to knock the netbook in the in the opening speech, which I love too, and just say how it was just basically a a slow, low quality PC. Uh, but he wasn't making a big deal of like, you know, he used the word category, but not trying to come up with a new la label. The label was already there as tablet PC. And he didn't have to make that up. Like Apple is always the, the grand example of, of those things. Uh, let's, let's change. <laughs> yes, perfect timing and perfect products too. Uh, let's change the subject for a second. Uh, let's talk about something completely different. Armando, you, you're starting your third company, right? I didn't even realize you had a company, by the way, in between uh, breadcrumbs and at espresso. You must have not done that well. No, it was before, before the espresso. Before the espresso. And it didn't go that? well. Uh, <laughs> lot, lots of learnings, as they say, but not, not much else. That's cool. What was the name of that company? It was Peak One, and it was the idea back then. It was 2009. Uh, and the idea was social market research out of Facebook data, funny enough, uh, for enterprise companies. And then clearly, it was before Sherry Sandberg. Um, mm. back in the days when like Facebook was this tiny up and upcoming young company that was coming out of, you know, uh, the US back in the days. Um, and then they went in a completely different direction because of course they hired Sheryl Sandberg, which was hired with a specific mandate, if I remember correctly, of kind of replicating the Google infrastructure into Facebook. And so giving away data was not a topic. They wanted as, as much as possible to be able to do <laughs> that you know, competitive um, advertising infrastructure uh, to go against Google. Sherry, tarnish your business model. What's, uh, when you think about, uh, and I'll go to you, to you, David, next. But Armand, maybe you can give us the first answer. When you think about the biggest, you know, for those three companies you, 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 two, you know, three companies you created, uh, seeing a lot of the usual stories, a lot of the usual romantic stories about startups, the, the ups and downs, the, the TechCrunch articles. What's, what's the truth that, that you have that you know is absolute, that is contrarian to the common, common belief? Something that you've experienced to be opposite of what you hear on the stage of, of Saster. Uh, well, there is one thing that people constantly say. Some people understand I don't know how many people really internalize, uh, which is the fact that things like overnight successes don't really exist. Like overnight success is like seven years in the making most of the times or something like that. Um, and also personal struggle, maybe the single most difficult thing from my perspective in doing this, I've been doing this for what, 12 years now, something like that, is that some, like things you cannot accelerate beyond a certain pace, right? The example that I give, and I had to relearn this over and over again, I still do. Like if you, give, if you have like a little plant and you give it too much water, it will drown. If you give it too much sun, it will dry out, right? So you have to give the right amount of water and the right amount of sun and time, and it will grow into a beautiful tree. Right, like it will take what, like 15 years, right? And so it's that type of thing. And in parallel to that, of course, you are eager and ambitious and overachieving and working insane hours. And so you want all things to go as fast as possible and happen now. But there is also that other side. Love that. 
do you have a particular example that comes to mind when you think about that like impatience for growth and, uh, and accelerating it no everything i'm constantly frustrated because i see the future see like my curse is that i i see the future how exciting it can be i can totally see the path to get there but you're not there yet and so you're like instead like stuck here and making tiny little progress on a daily basis which is super painful and hard to get but yeah that's awesome thank you for sharing that david what about you what's a, what's a what's an absolute truth that you've learned you've been on both sides kind of both on the corporate and on the startup side uh that, that you know to be true that is contrary to the common view i guess uh i think startups are a great place for generalists and uh you know people usually assume the opposite startups you know you need you all you need is engineers and killer salespeople, you know and that that's kind of all you need but actually i think there's so much of the startup environment uh and i've been cmo at two growth growth stage companies or high growth companies um so much is just unpredictable and um you know you have to wear so many hats i guess that's kind of obvious but what's what was not obvious a lot of people come to me and say you know should i start uh with demand gen or should i start with branding or should i start with product marketing um and i've done it every which way and you know always gotten it wrong because what, what i've learned recently i just started taking up uh boxing during the during covid and um you know when you when you uh slip it sets you up for the punch right so the offense and the defense are just totally interrelated i get i understand skiing is kind of the same thing like your one turn kind of slows you down but it also creates momentum for the next one and so i guess it goes back a little bit to your growth analogy like you have to do things in lockstep and you have to be really ready it's really truly about juggling these balls and if you're if your muscle is too strong you know in one area you're just going to get knocked out so um you know taking taking having that balanced approach and when it comes to marketing, um, you know, doing a little bit of product marketing, a little bit of demand gen, a little bit of brand step-by-step step as you ladder up is super important because those things, you know, are just, you know, interchangeably and they, they create a multiplier effect. But if you do one without the other, you're going to get crushed. Many interesting follow-ups on that one. Uh, first one <laughs> is, uh, what, at what stage do you think the, a, a startup or maybe not a startup anymore, needs a generalist and at what stage do you start bringing in you know particular professionals and experts to to, the, to do a particular job uh i mean we're really you know at, at ignite we're bringing in all the experts now we're we've got about seven seven hundred people coming on 800 people um and uh you know over 100 million in revenue and now now it's really about specialization but even as early as you know, when I joined two years ago, we still needed uh, people who were more flexible. I guess the ideal is always people who are T-shaped, who have that depth, but can also be flexible and adaptable. Um, but, so you know, all it's not maybe it's not just startups. I mean, it's really it's really the whole the whole world now and technology. Things are moving so fast that too much rigidity um, in your expertise. Like we, you know, we have some people who are expert even um they know uh let's say you know what where night exists is we're kind of like the i don't know to use another steve jobs kind of like the iphone you know where they matched up this and this and this we're, we're matching up uh content management with security 
with uh, AI for content intelligence. And we have some people who just know one of those things too well. And if you're too rigid and you only know security or you only know content management and you're not flexible enough to um, create this new you know, combined offering, that's gonna be a problem. So, so in any company that's moving fast, you have to be um, capable of sort of forgetting some of your, your, your trained assumptions. Um, so anyway, I don't know. There's there's a good book on that too. Um, I'll have to I'll have to send you the name, but it, it talks about Tiger Woods, you know, being the master of specialism, uh, and Roger Federer being the example of the generalist. And Roger Federer kind of grew up playing lots of different sports, you know, more soccer and more squash than he did tennis, and he became an incredible athlete because tennis is a more unpredictable sport. And you know, golf it works okay to be a specialist, like maybe in music because those sports are so, they're so controlled, like almost everything's under your control. Yeah, there's wind and stuff, but there's no competitor throwing balls at you. And, um, you know, in startups and, you know, high growth environments, it's just the, a classic example of like, there, there's so much kind of uncertainty in the environment that journalism is, is, is good, I think, at all stages, um, as long as you have some specialists too. Super insightful. Armando, you wanted to say something? Yeah, no, I was thinking that um, I would argue that it's a generalist to specialist ratio that changes over time. Uh, that is, I even more mature companies, I was thinking back to my experience at Hootsuite, which is a company with a thousand people. Um, and uh, you have like generalists and then you have specialists, right? And uh, when you look at a startup as a super early stage, like a 10 people company, it's mostly generalists. And so as the company grows, you grow in size. So you hire more people, but you change also in terms of seniority. So you are progressively more senior people and less junior people. And when you get to, I would argue maybe series A, looking at series B, you start building that you know, specialist um, arsenal, quote unquote, of people. Um, and then over time, of course, as the company matures, it evolves as well. That's how I would frame it. I don't know if it's useful or not. Now, maybe you don't want your director of engineering to be, a, you know, a journalist. Uh, you yeah. want, you know, or your director of security. You probably want them to be a specialist. Yes. But yes. I think that's something that's counterintuitive, though, about the startup environment that it does uh, lend itself well to people who have more uh, kind of broad interests. Hey, David, tell us about taking on boxing. How long you've been doing it for? <laughs> well, it's just in my house, uh, but uh, you know, it's been a nice. Nice way to break up the uh, uh, the pandemic, and uh, I tried it a little bit before. I I I think I told you I moved from Brooklyn about uh, eighteen months ago, just before the pandemic. And Brooklyn has all these great boxing gyms, you know, the, including some very famous ones. And I never did it there, and uh, I guess maybe it was a little bit of homesickness that got me to do it now that now that I moved out to the suburbs. But there's all these great. Um, there's a Peloton competitor. For, for boxing now. So that. I, I, I've, I've served ads by them every day on Facebook. I've decided not to go that direction. Instead, uh, just signed up for an online subscription service that is run by one of George Foreman's sons. And it's, it's great. I mean, it has all the videos. It's about uh, a quarter of the cost is the one that has the, the sensors built into the gloves, but I'm sure both wow. of them are, are very good. Very cool. So you do that at home, like shadow boxing, kind of like recording yourself and, and working. Oh, yeah, have a, have a bag and, you know, some of the other equipment. 
it's very, uh, I got, I got the Peloton too, but, um, you know, you can get a bag and all the equipment for a hundred bucks, you know, versus you can't, that, you can't get started with the you. Peloton. Yeah. VCs, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> well, they did, they did invest in that Peloton competitor. I did see that on TechCrunch that they, they just raised some massive round. Yeah, that's, uh, of course. I was about to say your your nose looks very nice and solid. Uh, right, right, right. It, it, no, it, I haven't it, got it gets, into the ring yet. No, I didn't get into the ring yet. Uh, that's cool. I think that's very healthy. How long have you been doing it for? Well, like I said, just just a pandemic uh, so a year, uh, year and break, a so about a year. Yeah, that's awesome. Good for you. That's exciting. Um, Armando, is there anything interesting uh, that you have taken on that uh, that people don't know that you is a habit of yours? I started a Hobby. new company, the breadcrumbs. I, I actually incorporated <laughs> it the week before local uh, global lockdown started last year. And so that was my pandemic project. Well, that's your comfort zone at this point. Starting I, know. Companies. I know. Yeah, <laughs> no, that, that was about it. Well, I am actually moving to New York. Uh, so you might call that also as a little side project. So after 11 years in San Francisco, um, I'll be moving to New York uh, in a few weeks, actually. That's right. Last time I saw you was at the, at the event at the, I forgot the name of that hotel uh, in, in, in close to the, yeah, in San Francisco. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of the VC, Partech, Partech Ventures event. I think I saw oh. I think I saw you there. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe cannot confirm nor deny. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. You were a little drunk. Uh, no, that's great. I think I think cannot confirm nor deny either. <laughs> that's cool. Uh, thank you for sharing that. That 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 was really nice. I think that was a really interesting insight that both of you had. If you have to go back to and you both had different careers, so I'm interested to hear that that answer. If you have to go back to a a failure that you had, a personal failure, like something that you, you screwed up, like you just, you just failed at something, you know, like a big, nice hashtag fail that you went to sleep, like embarrassed and pissed. Um, Armando, I'll start with you. <laughs> what do you think? When, when, what's the first connotation that comes to mind when you think about that, when you think what hashtag fail and you look at yourself and like, shit. I, I uh, in, which, in which way? Like what it is or what, a, what was the second and, part of the question? And, and tell me the story. What oh, you, well, what, my what first company didn't go great. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, that was, because, that was because of Sheryl Sandberg, nothing to do with you. Yeah, maybe, but yeah, still, I mean, it's your company. You, you, you throw, what, like two, three years at it. You raised, you know, million dollars or you know, something like that for it. And so, and it's, it's you. It's so it's a... Uh, it's and you know you know startups startups are intense and it's uh like on, on you most of the stuff and so and it's one of the things that it's hard it's to separate yourself from your company uh which is something that i ended up learning through that experience but you know most people have challenges doing that what you you were able to learn that tell me yeah i would argue that yes how do you separate yourself from the startup uh, well, that is you and then there's <laughs> your company. But like a lot of lot of founders identify and tend to personalize their startup because it, it is personal, right? You're putting your network into it. You're putting your uh, background, your expertise, your insights into it, your work, blood, sweat, and tears, your time into it. Your family knows about it. Your friends knows about it. It's the only thing that you talk about for most of the times with most people. Um 
but it's it's still not you, right? And so at some no, point, I, I didn't get to that lesson yet. Don't ask me. I think it's the same. But no, no, I'm just kidding. You're right. Uh, I, I think it's a very hard lesson, though. I think you, you may have. But you didn't answer the question. So I'm going to go to David. And then you think about uh, I, uh, I want a, I want a particular uh, example of something that you personally screwed up, a mistake, uh, an act of failure. David, you, you had some time to think about it by now. Yeah. Well, I'm trying probably my most public failure. Um, I started off as a as a journalist. Um, when people actually read magazines and I got this dream job at time magazine and like, you know, before the iPhone and everything, like people read that stuff, you know, what maybe they read in the bathroom or the doctor's office, but everyone read it. And so my job as the new guy was to um, kind of write some of the stuff in the front of the book, the winners and losers, and maybe the obituaries. I wrote the table of contents sometimes, uh, but it was a great job. And one day I, I misspelled Shaquille O'Neal. Uh, and I looked it up, I looked up his name, you know, 20 different ways on LexisNexis and you know, all these other newspapers and stuff. A-K-I-L, right? I yeah, it's a hard name to spell. And I got called up into the editor's office and he literally threw the book at me because he said, I don't care how much internet research you did and found to justify, you know, the spelling of that name. Like this is a this is a real book, like that tells you how the name is actually spelled. It teaches you not to trust what you read. On the newspaper newspapers or on the internet um so that was probably like most visible because you know back in the day you know hundred, hundreds of millions of people um would have read that uh but my failure from that was actually uh leaving that job because it was a it was a tough job and, and i knew i didn't want to be a, a creator like a writer for my whole career but i should have stuck it out a little bit longer um i was there for less than less than a year i don't know that sent me over the edge maybe subliminally it did um i got an offer to kind of move on and start to get into the tech world but i i should have stuck that out uh i should have stuck that out longer and i remember when i quit the editor was like was it because of the shaquille o'neal thing and i was like no no, no it wasn't because <laughs> of that it was i wanted to move on but that was i'd say a failure in my career when you get when you get a early in your life if you get a early you know an opportunity even if you know it's not forever just like see it out for a little bit longer because you can learn so much from that experience and being a CMO, you know, I'm probably one, one of my top jobs is being the copywriter and, uh, you know, having those skills is, is pretty helpful. I wish I had a little bit more of it. That's cool. I think everything is for the best, but, uh, but that's cool. Did they ever print out <laughs> those hundreds of millions of copies or, or it, it Oh yeah. Oh no, that was the, that was the issue is like, you know, it's not like, you know, these days where it goes on the Buzzfeed website and then they could just change the website. There's hundreds of millions of copies uh, misspelled. And at the time, there was a lot of issues with young reporters um, being loose with the facts. So people were extra sensitive. Was I one of those? One, I'm just assuming the best of them. Uh, was I one of those guys who was going to be loose with the facts? And um, there, was a, there was a rash of that, the New Republic and other places. So uh, it was you know, public failure, number one. <laughs> that's a cool failure. That's, that's a cool. Armando, what about you? Uh, I'm not sure I understand the question. <laughs> like if, <laughs> if failing at a company, it doesn't not- have to be a company. What's, what's the, <laughs> first of all, I'll, I'll just write one more minute and then I'll leave you alone with that one. But like, what, what's the, what's the example, like just a personal experience where you fucked up personally, not someone else. You just, you made a mistake and it had consequences that were just fail slash embarrassing uh, on you personally, an implication on you personally. 
Mm, that's the biggest I can think of. I don't. I, I don't know. There's nothing else coming to mind. See, right this now. is why I need alcohol for my for my guests. <laughs> hey, I know we have. I'm having a lot of time. We have a lot of fun. When I do have a lot of fun, I, I realize the time goes by and I forget to to assess it. We have five minutes left for for this episode. I want to ask you before before we end this. Um, if you have one piece of advice for uh, for entrepreneurs early early in their career, like people who want to start companies, people who who are maybe on that first few months of confusion, not really knowing if what they're doing is the right thing, should they do it, all that all that tough tough, tough time. What's a piece of advice um, you have for them, David? You can I see you're, you're muted, but I'm going to start with you first. What's a piece of advice you have? Yeah, well, this is a this is a tough one for me because um, the piece of advice is not to give so much advice. Um, it's something that I'm struggling with, uh, you know, every day, I think I have a little failure where I give too much advice and, um, you know, just to, you know, it, it try to inquire more, advocate less because, you know, especially as an entrepreneur or someone who's highly educated or just highly motivated, like you want to control the situation, you want to win, you don't want to let your teammates uh, make mistakes, but that's something you really have to do is you have to let your teammates make mistakes. You have to not control the situation. You have to let other people um, flourish. So I don't know if this applies just to entrepreneurs, but it's, uh, you know, something that I'm working with on my own, in my own career, my own management style is uh, how do I give less advice and ask more questions? There. Armando? Uh, on my side, I would probably suggest slash recommend um, like a trial and error type of approach. Uh, like if you're testing something out, if you have this idea that you think might be great, um, try out uh, low stakes, see where it goes, and then you know iterate on it, kind of like applying the scientific method, right? Um, trying to kill it uh, yourself before uh, someone else does um, in its most important pieces, right? In its most important elements. Um, usually you, you wanna, the more you can do that and the more it survives, the more you can have confidence that there is something there. So be your own critic, your, your hardest critic, be your own devil's advocate before you... Yeah, gonna... but actively try to kill your idea and see whether it survives. Like I've, I've, I've done that uh, a bunch of times and it's usually it works. David... That's not too different. What's yeah, that? that's not too different from uh, no. my advice not to give advice is kind of to uh, recognize the limitations of your own opinions and uh, you know be, be open to be outsiders more that's a struggle for entrepreneurs but it's a struggle for everyone yeah and there's always a balance to do between conviction and being kind of a little crazy but also being <laughs> to coaching i think that that's kind of the balance uh gents i really enjoyed talking to you you were awesome uh, a lot of fun thank you very much for your time for your participation have a wonderful beautiful weekend Chat soon. thanks everyone thank you. Thanks again for joining us. I hope that you enjoyed today's discussion and will tune in again. Find all of the B2B Category Creators episodes at metadata.io. And if you have any feedback, topics, or would like to be a guest on the show, please reach out. 